Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Nobody, including jurors, will long listen to a story that's not in some way about themselves. And so you have to make the jurors understand that the case is about them, not just about your client. And so to, in a very visceral way, create for them the experience that all of us have when we go in and are so vulnerable in these doctor's offices with those stupid gowns. So that was the idea, was to immediately grab the jurors and put them in the same place that our clients had been in. And now, your hosts, Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am your host, Steve Lowry, and I am with my uh, fascinating co-host, <laughs> Yvonne Godfrey. Fascinating. I, Thank I, you. I, am, I, I am always working on new things to say about you, Yvonne. I know. The, I know. You've ne- never ending. When you, I, the thing is, like, I don't think anybody will ever bust you if you use the same adjective <laughs> twice, but I like that you will know, right? I, I, I don't, don't know I'll if know. I'll know, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've tried to go back and think if I've used some of these words before, and I, I need to start keeping a real list, but I, 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 I'm sure at some point I'll use, the, uh, use it more than once. You know I'm just waiting for the day when you get to the insults, when you get to the <laughs> right. mean adjectives. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a long time coming. <laughs> um, well, Yvonne, uh, I, I um, just wanted to say, you know, first of all, how uh, uh, proud we are to have our guest on today. Our guest today is Randy McGinn uh, from the McGinn Montoya Love and Curry Law Firm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, her website is McGinnLaw, M-C-G-I-N-N-L-A-W.com. And uh, Randy, thank you so much for coming on and welcome. Oh, it's great to be here. Nice talking. Nice to be able to talk to you both. Yeah, and uh, and Randy, I'm gonna uh, do a little introduction of you, and I, I um, have to say that uh, I, you know, went on. To, I looked at your uh, CV and uh, and looked at your biography, and then I went onto your website, and I love one thing that you do on here is you say, uh, "Here's some of the things that you might find interesting about me," and then here's some stuff you're probably gonna find boring about me, and you put it all on there. Yeah, just just skip the boring stuff. The boring stuff. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> The interesting stuff is really interesting, and I have like two specific things that we have to talk about, Steve, but I'm going to see what you lead with first. I I think I know where you're going because I I feel like we're going to have to do a a whole episode just on a couple of these things. Just on the bio. (laughs) (laughs) So, Randy, some of the uh, things that I'm going to read about you come from your boring list, but I think they're important, so I want to make sure that that we do say it. Um, You have been listed in the Best Lawyers in America in both the civil... uh, uh, trial law and in criminal trial law, which is you don't see many lawyers who do that. Right. Um, you were the first uh, uh, female president of the Inner Circle, uh, which is the top 100 trial lawyers uh, in America and is just a, a very prestigious group. Uh, you were the president of the New Mexico Trial Lawyers Association, and you were named um, by Emerge as the New Mexico Woman of the Year. So those are uh, certainly some great accomplishments. And now we're going to talk about some of the interesting accomplishments that you have. I mean, you, you know you're doing well if those are your boring accomplishments. Right, right exactly. <laughs> those are the boring ones. Boring, boring. <laughs> right. I, I should say, and this is, this is one of the interesting things, you, and, and it, it kind of leads over to what we uh, talked about on our bonus episode. Uh, you are the author of a book called Changing Laws, Saving Lives, how to Take on Corporate Giants and Win, which is available through Trial Guides uh, at the trialguides.com uh, website. But um, 
you know, that that's a, a book that you've written, um, Randy. And, um, and now I want to get to some of the other interesting stuff. And this is what I, I really want to have a chance to talk to you about. And I know Yvonne wants to have a chance to talk, about, <laughs> to, talk to you about. Uh, so first of all, um, you, I think it was your, was it your daughter that you had three days before you took the bar exam? Oh, the day before the bar exam. The day before the bar exam. <laughs> well, I mean, I, on the one hand, that, that, I mean, I have no idea, you know, how, how bad that would be uh, other than through my wife. But uh, on the one hand, you got to think that, you know, once you've had a baby and then you're going to the bar exam, you're like, eh, it's just a bar exam. I just had a baby. So uh. <laughs> that's exactly right. So here's, here's how I thought about it. It was, it was, um, uh, I, I feel had no more stress anymore because if I flunked, I, I knew people would say, well, of course she flunked. She had that baby before the bar exam. So, right. so all the pressure was off. It was, it was great. So the key is big pillows. You just have to go and sit on big pillows. During the bar <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, I mean, that is awesome. And obviously, uh, man, uh, I can't even imagine what that was like, but, uh, but, uh, kudos to you. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about is you, you uh, once cross-examined a witness uh, so bad that they threw up on the sand. Oh yeah, that was it was really great. It, you know, it, it, <laughs> after that you could just retire, right? Because it's never going to get any better than that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, this was a government informant who had kind of deal with the government, um, and 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 luckily we had a state his statement before he cut the deal with the government and then lied, lied, lied about my client. And as we went through each of these lies, he got greener and greener and greener. This was in federal court, the criminal case. <laughs> and finally just lost it there on the stand. And that, that's, all, that's all you need to do. You just yeah. say, okay, I, I, uh, I have no more questions. Yeah. Now that he's parked all over the federal uh, judge's bench there. That's okay. That's good. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there is no question to ask after that. That's just uh, that's sit right. down. You're done. <laughs> You're done, right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that. Um, so then the, uh, the other one that we, I wanted to talk to you about, and Yvonne, please feel free to, to step in, but um, you had a, uh, a doctor from Beverly Hills who you cross-examined with, and by the end of your cross-examine, uh, the doctor was covered with post-it notes and clutching a grapefruit to his chest. Okay, so yes, that is you're, correct. So, you're going to um, have so to explain is, that. <laughs> all right, so this was a, um, a, a doctor from Beverly Hills who came up um, alone among doctors in the country with the theory that once a tumor was big enough to see on x-ray, um, it had already metastasized. So that meant he was like the most popular expert in the country for any misdiagnosis of cancer today. Right, he'd right. Say, he'd come in and say, so what? Um, it's my testimony no, and, and my belief, although nobody else agrees with me, that it was already too late. They were already dead meat. And so he went all around the country and he made, I think at that time he was making oh, you know, like five, six hundred thousand dollars a year testifying around the country. And then how the, the, he made the rest of his money was treating cancer patients because he was an oncologist. Right. And he would never tell the cancer patients about his personal theory that you shouldn't bother with any treatment because we've seen it on x-ray. And so it's already too late. You're already dead. Right. And when you ask why, you hypocrite, why would you not tell them <laughs> just go home and die because it's too late? He said, well, you know, People have to have hope, is what he said. And, well, and really, it was that he had to have money, is why he was lying about that. So that's the setup. So you have to say, you have to really hate the guy before you do this to them. You know, you can't do this right. to everybody. So then, then I, I called him down off the stand, and after the jury knew what a, what a jerk he was, um, 
called him down and pulled out a, a grapefruit and said, do you, do you recognize this? And he said, yes, it's the California grapefruit, because that's where he was from. And I stood up in front of the jury and said, well, could you hold the grapefruit up about where the tumor is? And I understand this grapefruit is much, much bigger than the tumor, but we want to be able to have the jury see this. And I'm trying to understand uh, this theory of yours about metastasis. And I took a, a, a stack of post-it notes and said, as I understand it, these tumors break off the grapefruit, essentially, and they start floating around. And, and if you can catch it in time, you can provide radiation and kill all the cells that are floating around the body, and then that person can live. And, and it's your testimony, though, that, that um, uh, they'll go and they'll go to the next area of lymph nodes, which are right here about your tie, um, and they'll land there first. And I said, do you mind if I stick these on you? <laughs> and he had, of course, the choice of saying, yes, I do mind or no, I don't. But once he said, yes, go right ahead, then I stuck them all over his body, all, all, <laughs> all the different lymph nodes would be, all the different places, and how you could radiate, provide radiation to those two areas, and now they would live. You could provide radiation to another area. And, and I, I stuck them everywhere except the last place he said they would go is to the brain. So I, I didn't stick them on his head. <laughs> discombobulated <laughs> that he went back to the witness stand with the grapefruit and with all the stickies and it wasn't until the middle of redirect that he realized he had all this stuff still stuck on him and he started ripping it all off so so it was very effective and of course the jury who hated him both the jury and the judge as these stickies went all over him just were laughing hysterically oh, i mean and, it's fantastic and, well yeah but you can only do it to somebody who's really really bad <laughs> right and exactly. the jury and who the jury wants you to go after because he's such a hypocrite. So yeah, it was very effective. <laughs> I, I'm surprised that on redirect, his lawyer didn't go up there and try and, you know, peel him off of him to say like, let's get all these things off of you. And, you know, but, uh, but he just redirected him with one. Yeah. That's right. Not, not only did they not go pull the stickies off, but they never objected to it because they couldn't <laughs> think of the objection. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like, what's the objection? You're sticking things on my expert. Like, what is it? They couldn't yeah. ever think of it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I love uh, that. Those are great. Well, I, I should say, uh, Randy, we, we are here to talk about um, uh, another uh, just great case that, that you tried uh, back in 2014. And the name of the case is uh, Swords versus Biotronic Inc. and Edward, T uh, Edward Tag. Um, tag, that's right. Tag, okay. Uh, and, and your clients were Tommy and, and Barbara Swords, and uh, and Tommy uh, had had a pacemaker uh, implanted, and the um, the case was essentially about this company, Biotronic, and their their representative Edward Tag, um, uh, basically promoting. Uh, uh, putting pacemakers and defibrillators into patients who did not need them in order to make money. And you brought it through a civil con conspiracy uh, count, which I thought, you know, is, uh, I've, I, I love using conspiracy, uh, you know, as a, as a uh, vehicle. And so I, I, I like to see that you, uh, you tried it that way and, um, and just incredibly effective. So I should say, um, you told us beforehand that he, that, uh, the swords were one of 34 clients that you had and um, and you tried this case and the end result uh, and we're going to go through how you got there but the end result was a two million three hundred eighty three thousand six hundred seventy three dollar compensatory uh, verdict and a sixty five million dollar punitive uh, verdict 
and um, and I understand from you that your um, uh, one regret is that uh, after you tried this case and obviously did it just a, a, a great job, uh, they wouldn't let you try any of the other 33 cases. They did not want to try anymore. It was because the first case actually got tried in the most conservative jurisdiction where we had these files. So it had been filed by some other lawyers down in the southern part of the state in the same town where the hospital was that was involved in this and also a very conservative jurisdiction. And so the other side wanted to try it down there first because they thought we would get poured out. Um, and all the rest were tried in a, a more liberal part of the state in Santa Fe. So the okay. worst, it was going to get worse for them after that. That was the one they were going to win was the one down there. See? And that was in uh, Las Cruces, uh, New Mexico? Las Cruces, Las Cruces, New Mexico, right. It's where the hospital was, that, where all these makers got implanted. And I, I should I should have mentioned that. See, there were two other people. It sounded like that were involved in it, or two other entities involved in this conspiracy. And that was a, a doctor uh, who would implant these pacemakers and and defibrillators. And I'm going to let you talk about this about how he uh, really, you know, if you if you walked into the hospital for almost any reason, you were going to get a pacemaker or a defibrillator put into your chest. Is what it sounded like. Trolling the emergency room. <laughs> right, he would right. the emergency room and you come in with a sprained ankle and he'd say, well, we should just check your heart while you're here. And you'd say, well, I've never had a heart problem. Well, let's check it. And then he would say to them, you know, you're going to die. I, I have some bad news for you. You're going to die unless you get a pacemaker. And you would say, wait a second. No one's even ever told me I had a heart condition. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I'm just telling you, you're going to die. He said, well, should I, could I, can I go home? Can I get a second opinion? He'd say, well, yes. You can, but first you have to sign this piece of paper saying you acknowledge that you could die on the drive home. Good God. And so people would just stay and say, okay, I'm not leaving. Put the pacemaker yeah. in. Put the pacemaker in. Yeah, all, it it just changed your, your life entirely uh, based on this one guy. And, and, the, and these were all done at Mountain View Regional Medical Center. That was the, uh, that was the hospital that was involved? That's right. Okay. And I, and I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but I thought that was so effective in your opening, um, Randy, when you let off with that feeling when you walk into that, you know, the, the, the OR or whatever, and you're naked except for that awful gown that ties in the front or ties in the back and how it's like this, everyone identifies with how vulnerable you feel in that moment. And just from there on, I was like with you from, there, from then on. <laughs> I wanted to be on that jury. I was like, I am here. <laughs> well, the key, you know, uh, nobody, including jurors, will long listen to a story that's not in some way about themselves. And so you have to make the jurors understand that the case is about them, not just about your client. And so to, in a very, very visceral way, create for them the experience that all of us have when we go in and are so vulnerable in these doctor's offices with those stupid gowns um, to put us all in the same place and say, that's when you're the most vulnerable. And that's why we have laws that say the doctor shouldn't have a financial interest in what's gonna happen to you. I mean, that's, that's why. I mean, and, and so that was the idea was to immediately grab the jurors and put them in the same place that our clients had been in. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? 
No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS Legal Technology Services are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. Just like uh, Yvonne said, I mean, the way you portrayed it, it, you know, it's just that you, you are in this just totally vulnerable position and then you're getting this high pressure sales pitch, essentially, uh, you know, even beyond just a regular sales pitch, just, you know, if you don't do this, uh, you're probably going to die. Luck. So good luck, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, going and, home. And, and by the way, with this, guy, with this guy, it would not just be him. He'd bring in, it was weird because he'd bring the sales rep in too. So the two of them would put like this double team thing on you about how you have to have this, not just a pacemaker, but this particular kind of device from Biotronic. Yeah, I, I was, I saw that. So Edward Tag, the the sales rep, uh, who who I assume had no medical training, is in there also telling uh, people that if they don't get this done, they're going to die. Right. That's it. That's huh. it. So people would say, okay, well, I got to have it then, don't I? And, <laughs> and the saddest thing is with this group of people, they would first put in a, a one chamber pacemaker and then then after a, uh, you know six months or a couple of years, they'd put in a two-chamber pacemaker, and then finally they'd end up putting a defibrillator in. So they'd get, with some of these people, three different devices, and, and just uh, um, were selling all kinds of biotronic devices that way. Yeah, and, and uh, kind of walk us through, I mean, so, so your case was about this conspiracy to uh, essentially put in these unnecessary pacemakers and defibrillators. Kind of walk us through the, the evidence from, you know, how Biotronic uh, started this and then, um, you know, were, came up with this sort of master plan in order to increase their, uh, their revenue shares in America. Okay, so, so they were the leading um, uh, device manufacturer in Europe and wanted to come break into America. And so in 2003, um, they, um, they came up with a plan of how they were going to break into the American market and take over market share from the big three device manufacturers in the U.S. And it really, the, the, the key to the case actually was getting all the stuff that proved this. And, and they fought us tooth and nail, of course, in discovery to get any of this. But they kept lying about things. They kept saying that they'd never been investigated anywhere else and all this stuff. And we found, you know, the Internet is the, the great um, equalizer for small firms because you can when they lie to you you can find things online and they had actually been investigated by the Justice Department and when the court found out that they lied about them he made them turn over everything that had been subpoenaed by the Justice Department and that's how we got all of this paperwork from 2003 when they first came here and said how are we going to break into this market um, and and it was sort of a three-pronged approach the first thing they 
wanted to do is rather than train up their own sales reps from scratch, which would take years, they decided to steal other companies' sales reps. That's where they found Edward Tagg. He had just been let go from a company whose defibrillators were defective and had been killing people, and he had still was still selling them even though he knew that they would occasionally shock people to death. Um, so that's the kind of guy Edward Tagg was. was. Right. He was from Texas. Um, and then, um, so they needed to get hire a sales rep or get, that was already trained up and already had a, a book of business or a bunch of customers. The second prong of it was to find high implanting um, doctors who were implanting lots of pacemakers and defibrillators and to lure them away from the companies that they were, whose devices they were using. And, and this is where the, the, the criminal aspect of the conspiracy comes in in that there, there are laws that say uh, doctors are not supposed to be given anything by either drug companies or device manufacturers to encourage them to use their products. Um, it's called the Stark Act and the Anti-Kickback Act, two different federal acts. Right. And so they're not supposed to give them anything. So the way Biotronic, so Biotronic um, really violated those two rules by um, going to these doctors and offering to pay them extra money um, by doing a number of things that that uh, violated, I think, those two acts. The first thing is they would hire them as consultants, um, and I put that kind of in air quotes, um, where they'd say, you're on our consulting board, they just pay them some fee every year, $10,000, $15,000 a year to be on the consulting board. Then they would have them do studies They'd pay them for signing up patients for studies that never really were studies. Um, and then they would also have them do training, again, in quotes, because the training was, if I had three pacemakers scheduled today, I would have either a sales rep or another doctor come in and just watch me do the procedures I was already scheduled to do. Um, and each time somebody watched me, that counted for training, and I would get between $500 and $1,500 a pop. And without any limitation. I could do it, you know, 20 times wow. at $1,500 a pop um, and <laughs> make all this money from just having people watch me do this. And then the last thing that we found out that this guy was doing is they were, they were directly paying him, we suspect, in cash, um, right. $1,000 a procedure um, for um, implanting these pacemakers. And, and so it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but when you add it all up, it's, it's about forty. $300 per procedure and what they bill for the procedure what a doctor's allowed to bill is only about 1500 bucks so he's making wow. four or five times every procedure what he ordinarily would make so it, it ended up being a lot of money well and, and I saw some of the emails one of the emails I think you had uh, was a I, I, I I'm not sure I understood it right, but it basically it sounded like a woman uh, had, had who was one of their reps had said, "Make sure you're paying your referrals in cash because we don't want it to be any uh, any paper trail." And the, the I don't know the doctor was upset with her or something and said, "You know, this is payback or something like that." No, no. So, so the she was complaining that that the person who'd been training her had told people to oh, pay in cash okay. the trail. Yeah, and so she got booted out of the company because because of her whistleblowing and the that guy stayed on with the company and kept doing it. So yeah, so that was it. So that was the second leg. So they found this, this uh, osteopath, Dio Clonus in uh, Missouri, and they moved him from Missouri into the third leg of the stool, which is um, 
finding a hospital that's part of a national hospital chain. Um, and I don't know how it is there in Georgia, but all across the country, these national hospital chains are coming in and buying up all the hospitals in, the, in people's states. Oh yeah, it's, uh, uh, it, it's been happening more and more and it, it, there are almost, uh, you know, very few independent hospitals anymore. I mean, now almost all of them are owned by some bigger chain. Right. Well, and so all of them, almost all of them come out of Nashville because they're all spinoffs yeah. from the Hospital Corporation of America right. that Bill Fritz made so much money off of. So his buddies all split off and created their own national hospital chains. And, and why Biotronic wanted uh, to put these guys into a national hospital chain is that um, they have purchasers who buy devices across, say, 150 hospitals. Um, and so if a doctor says, I want to use a biotronic product, it gives the biotronic people an access to the national buyer, the national, and they say, look, we'll give you a big discount if you start using biotronic products in all your hospitals. So they deliberately moved this guy tag and this guy clonus into the hospital to Mountain View in Las Cruces um, so they could get access to the national hospital chain. And, and all of a sudden, this little hospital in Las Cruces was doing more pacemaker implantations than any hospital in the in the state, including the Heart Hospital here in Albuquerque. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I saw some uh, I, a statistic that I, if you lived in the Las Cruces area, you were 500% more likely to get a pacemaker or defibrillator than anywhere else in New Mexico. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, as, but as in his deposition, the doctor said, well, I think, I think that this is the doc, the DO, the crooked D.O. said, um, I think it's because we eat more Mexican food down here and that's bad for the heart. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> that's why it was. But really, it was just him telling people who didn't need pacemakers that they needed pacemakers. Um, anyway, the, you know, the key always in, in any case, whether it's a conspiracy case or a regular systems case or a negligence case, is to follow the money. And yeah. um, in this case, it's unclear how much um the doctor got because we believe a lot of it was paid in cash but we suspect it was around five hundred thousand dollars over a five-year period um interestingly within a very short period of time um the other doctors in this hospital stopped working with the guy they stopped letting him cover cases for them and they stopped covering cases for him because they'd come back from vacation and all of their clients all of their patients would have a pacemaker Oh my and God. so the doctor said, I don't want him covering any of my patients. Um, so the, the hospital was on notice that this guy was a problem. And then some very brave people in the, in the cath lab sent um, through um, the anonymous reporting system for this national hospital chain, sent an anonymous report from five of them saying, this guy is, that's how we knew he was lying to patients about them needing pacemakers. They said he's he's telling people they're going to die without a pacemaker. He's having them sign documents saying they're going to die. They understand they'll die on the way home unless they get the pacemaker. And we think this is wrong. And so those those anonymous people filed that with the hospital. The hospital put him on probation for a couple months, then had a big meeting about a year into his tenure there and found he had the economic credentials to continue because he was making so much money for the hospital. Because right. the, who made the most money of all of all these three the biotronic the doctor the hospital the person who made the most money of all was actually the hospital right who over the five years over the five years billed 
$28 million just for pacemaker and defibrillator implantation. But that number is actually double because before you get the pacemaker and defibrillator, you have to have a catheterization in the cath lab. And so it's really more like closer to $60, $60 million is what the hospital made wow. over the period of time, just from this one, this one guy. And that's why they let him continue to be there and put pacemakers in the patients because they were making so much money. So, but they, they were out of the case. They, they resolved the case as did the um, doctor before he got to trial. So it was just against Biotronic. Yeah. So uh, one thing I was wondering, you and you mentioned the criminal aspect of this, but I mean, it sounds pretty criminal to me. Um, what, were there any criminal charges for anybody out of this? We tried to get some, but our attorney general was not interested. Um, the doctor finally got his license yanked, but it took, I mean, it, when we first started this, he was still practicing. He was still practicing. Oh, yeah. and, uh, um, and they finally, they finally yanked his license, but um, we couldn't get anybody to look into it because it was a lot of work for local prosecutors here down here. So um, they sh- I, I think they should have looked at it for right. prosecution. And then the, the Justice Department, I, they did they ever take any action or were that that was just an investigation? They did not. They were, they were looking at them for something else, for, for something else rather than this kind of thing. Um, and they never did anything either. So so the only justice that ever happened was through the civil courts. Right. Um, and it took, it took a lot of scrabbling and trying to get the information we needed to prove the case. And that was the big fight was the discovery fight, you know. One of the things I was going to point out that, that you had in the documents that you found through discovery, and I mean, and this is a, a great example of how important discovery is. Uh, and, you know, for you know, non-lawyers who are listening, um, you know, when you by the time a case gets to trial, uh, there are many times years and years of uh, hard fighting that go into that to get together the documents you need uh, in order to make a, you know, a strong case. Uh, on the uh, other side. So the, the what you see at the end result during a trial uh, doesn't really show all of the work that's gone into that case. But I, I, I did want to point out that you you found some documents because it seemed like this company was pretty brazen about it, that they, they actually uh, were calling the doctors they wanted to target uh, the pay-to-play doctors. And that was that, in their documents. That's exactly right. That was in their documents. That, that they had, here's our, I mean, this whole plan of the getting the reps Finding a hospital, a national hospital chain, finding finding doctors uh, who were high implanting doctors who were paid to play doctors. That's all in their own materials that they fought and fought and fought, and the and the judge only gave us um, uh, after we he found out that they had lied about this, and and they were required to turn over the same documents they turned over to the federal government, and that was that was by the way a million documents, a million documents, wow. and so so we did. We did some of the electronic searches um, that you can do, but the other thing that we would do is we'd have people, uh, we were to, to motivate people in our office to go through these documents in addition to the electronic stuff, we would have a um, document of the day contest. So whoever found the best document of the day, <laughs> everybody could spend like, you know, an hour or something a day going through documents, um, would win, could win their choice of either a miniature, a little miniature of alcohol or, or uh, chocolate. That, that's oh. how we motivate. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that because, you know, it, it, you know, uh, we've had cases where we have, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of documents, and then they are hard to go through. I mean, it's hard to, uh, you know, get that, find that needle in the haystack, but it's gotta be done. But, uh, but I love right. that. Idea. 
That was it. Yep. So t- talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, how did you all figure this out in the first place? And was there a whistleblower uh, type of person that came to you? Or how, how, did you, how did you learn about what was going on? Well, it started with the, the first client. Um, and the, the doctor said, there's no way this person should have ever gotten a pacemaker. And, and it was a, another set of lawyers had the case before us. One of them was a medical doctor lawyer. And they then advertised, got a letter and put a letter out on Las Cruces, um, sort of a solicitation letter saying if you had a pacemaker from this guy or a defibrillator from this guy, because there may be some issue with it. And that, of course, that letter became once we took over the case, became either so I wanted to use that to say, look, they put all these people up to suing people because they sent this solicitation letter out saying you can make lots and lots of money if you have a pacemaker that that you didn't need. And so that we had to address that in opening because that they were going to bash us over the head with that. But um, so that's how we found all these other people who said that they'd been told by their doctors too that they didn't need the pacemaker that they got. Um, and, and that's how we got the 34 clients. I suspect there are many more clients than 34 that he put pacemakers into and defibrillators that didn't need them. Right. right. I mean, if, if you think it's $60 million, uh, over five years, it sounds like, uh, sounds like a lot more. Yes, there are. But those are the people who came out and those are the people who we had for our clients. And, uh, anyway, I, so, um, uh, I had, ahead. I had two questions kind of related to that, that were, that I noticed in your opening. The first, um, question was so you were able to talk about some of these other patients that like I, I noticed like the the 43 year old who who had the really low heart rate who got she got a right. pacemaker right so so conspiracy yeah so the judge told us we could pick three <laughs> so we couldn't put all we couldn't tell them about the other 33 people we could pick three and they all had to be before our guy came in so that we could say Biotronic should have been on notice because they, here are three people that should never have gotten a pacemaker and it should have known. Right. If, if Grant really wasn't involved in a conspiracy, this gave them notice that this guy was putting pacemakers into people that didn't need them. And so we picked three who were both ethnically diverse, but also diverse by age and the problems they came in with. So we picked a woman Hispanic woman, African-American man, and a white guy um, who all have had similar experiences, which kind of matched the different kinds of people who were in our jury so that we had a representative that people could relate to um, who, were, who were on our jury. And those are the three that we were allowed to talk about. Got it. Um, and then I noticed that um, at one point there was just a quick reference to um, an interpreter. Is it like in New Mexico, is that, do you usually have an interpreter or was that special for this case? So New Mexico is one of the few states in the entire country who in our constitution says that they have to print the ballots in Spanish and in English because are we have such a Spanish speaking, I mean, for, for years we have, we have been a, um, uh, Anglos are a minority population in New Mexico. Um, it is Hispanics, Native Americans, we're sort of a tri, <laughs> tri-cultural state and so in our constitution, because there were so many Hispanic people here first who spoke Spanish, um, we have a constitutional right to have, have an interpreter and have things translated into Spanish and 
all of that. And so, that, yes. So that's awesome. And you can't, you can't be strict jury because you can't speak English. They have to get an interpreter for you. Right. And so you, so almost uh, all of your trials have an interpreter interpreting everything? Well, no, no. Only if somebody doesn't speak English. Well okay. So, okay. So, so if you're in the jury pool um, and somebody comes in and says, I don't speak, I don't speak English very well, they have to get an interpreter for that juror. Okay. And do you find that, um, I mean, maybe you're used to it. Do you find it to be, I would think, especially in opening, maybe it would be, I don't know, maybe it would be good because it would give you more time to think, but maybe it would be bad. You know, does it? Oh, no, no. So they have a headset on. Oh. So the juror has a headset on. Oh. So it's just okay. exactly like this. So how it works is they're just sitting over in the back simultaneously translating while you talk. So you, it's unobtrusive to everybody else. Kind of like the uh, the court reporters who have the mouth uh, mouthpiece that they talk like into, that, like that, or like at the UN. So it's the same kind of thing that where they're translating into everybody's language, whatever somebody right. is saying. Got it. Oh, very cool. I was thinking you were having to wait sentence by sentence. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. 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 Okay. It's very seamless. Got it. Um, yeah, I've had I've done some of the uh, depositions of, uh, of uh, Japanese corporate representatives, and and uh, those depositions can be very long because they're you know translating your question, and he listens to it, and then he says it back, translates it again, and sometimes by the time you're getting the answer back, you're trying to remember what question you were asking in the first place. Oh right, and that's it's also deadly in trial. You can't really yeah. get any rhythm for cross examination in trial if that's if it's going on like that. Yeah. One of the guys who I deposed, who was a um, a corporate representative for a Japanese car manufacturer, had graduated from Georgetown University and had been the liaison for the car manufacturer to the the federal government for ten years. And so at the same, you know, so when I'm asking questions, I'm asking, so you really don't understand how to speak English? And he of course, understood everything I was saying and just said, well, sometimes with the big words, I have trouble, you know. Oh, that's terrible. They, well, that was the cover of the defense lawyers to make them translate everything so he had time to think, so that's really right. good. Right, right, exactly. Well, it made for, for, for an interesting trial here because the people that came in to defend Biotronic were from D.C. Um, and um, the, it was a very good lawyer from D.C., nice, very nice guy, but had obviously been to some kind of defense um, training for how, if you're from the big city, how you connect with people in a small town. Right, and right. so he had done two things. He'd learned that because this is a Hispanic, um, dominant Hispanic culture, that people were Irish Catholic. And he had also learned the name, obviously, from some kind of training session um, of the local um, team, which is the New Mexico State Aggies. All right, and so he kept creating analogies to try to connect with the juror, but he missed the part about that this is Hispanic Catholicism, not Irish Catholicism. So he'd come up with all these analogies about Father O'Brien, and he'd sort of do it with his Irish accent. <laughs> so Father O'Brien is in confession, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he had uh, like nine people on the jury who were Hispanic who were looking at him like, I don't connect and then the other thing you did was um here in new mexico we're so poor we our football teams all suck None of our football <laughs> right. teams. and so the aggies he kept making aggie football analogies too and which only made him stick out worse because nobody would make an aggie football right. analogy because nobody goes to the aggie football games it's all <laughs> right, <basketball right>. <laughs> so so 
somebody had told me this is how you're going to connect, but it did the exact opposite thing. That makes me cringe. Oh, you got to love it when you're doing that. Well, yeah. Well, you guys probably have the same thing in Georgia. You just love it when somebody from from DC or from New York or from Chicago come in to, and and they always think you're from some podunk town. They're going to kick your butt. Yeah. You know, so it's great. It's always so much better for you. Oh, totally. So we had, we had one time a, a Chicago, um, big Chicago law firm file a motion to prevent um, the jury from knowing that they were from out of town and to prevent us from telling the jury that we were from here, from New Mexico, and we were in Santa Fe. And um, the judge, when he heard the motion, just, just started to laugh and said, you know, well, this may work in Chicago, but you know, there's only 60,000 people here in Santa Fe, and Miss McGinn's partner grew up here. Right. So there's no way they're, they're not going to know that they're from here. And as soon as you try to pronounce some of these Hispanic names, they're going to know you're not from here. So, <laughs> right. so that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I, I wanted to go back to that letter uh, that you said that got sent out by your previous, uh, uh, the lawyers who handled previously. How did you handle that? Because I, I saw that letter in there. And, uh, and, you know, basically saying, you know, if you've been implanted by this doctor, it may have been unnecessary. How, how did you go about uh, uh, responding to that or handling that at trial? So, so I think you got to um, take this thing out of the bad stuff and opening statement. Yeah. So um, we present our case first and talk about all the bad stuff they did and how to, here are the rules that they violated and here's the conspiracy they did and all that. And then sort of at the end of opening when you talk about uh, and so what are they going to say to this? What are they going to say when we say they've conspired and they've put in all these pacemakers that people didn't need? They're going to say three things, right? Um, the first thing they're going to say, uh, there was this letter that these lawyers that are not me, these other lawyers sent out, that they put these people up for that. So so you, you talk about it before they can talk about it, right? right. And then we had four of the other things. We talk about their expert witnesses are going to come in and say, oh, no, no, they needed these pacemakers and those experts are part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And then finally, they were going to make a statute of limitations defense. And so, so we, I brought up all those things and gave them the answers to what the defense was going to, to raise. So because, because you want to, when, when you go, when they go back to the jury room, there's some people who are on your side, some people who are on their side, and you want to give your people arguments to make to the other side about why they're wrong. And so if you give those to them right in opening, um, they can make those arguments all the way through trial. And here in New Mexico, as long as they're all together in the jury room, they can start talking about the case right. before all the evidence is in. So they can oh, wow. they can start talking about it right away. And the only rule is they all have to be in the room together before they talk about the case. Oh, they that's can talk cool. about pieces of evidence and all that kind of stuff as, as the case goes along. And, and so you want them to have your counter arguments to the defenses right up from opening. Um, yeah. And then, if, then, they, then they stand up in their opening and they say those same three things I just told them they were going to say. That how, how can they possibly defend this kind of conduct? Here's the three stupid things they're going to say. Then they stand up and they say the three stupid things. Yeah. So, yeah it's, it's crazy. I've, I've had that same thing where you say, you know, here's how they're going to defend it. And then you think they would change up some, but then they get up and they defend it exactly how you just told them. Um, right. So, um, well, talk to us a little bit about um, 
about the the uh, the damages in this case because uh, the the uh, you know obviously the compensatory damages w- were significant, but the punitive damages that you, that were awarded uh, were uh, you know very large. And so, um, talk to you, talk to us about how you went about presenting the um, your damages to the jury. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Okay, well, so the, the compensatory damages were much larger than we ever thought they were going to be. In fact, the lawyers who had had the case before me had told each of the 33 clients that they expected to obtain from all three defendants, from the hospital, from the doctor, and from these people, a total of $200,000 each. Wow. That's, that's the number. That, because, because in fact, if you have a pacemaker that you don't need, all they do, it's up here, a little pocket in your, uh, up by your shoulder. They just cut it out. They just take the little pacemaker out, right? And you've got wires down through your heart that most of the time don't cause any problems. Um, for, for, for some people, it causes problems because you can't have an MRI because that they're made out of metal. And so they'll, yeah. they'll pull through the, through the veins of your heart if you have an MRI. But other than that, there's really not a lot of damage as a result of having a pacemaker in, in, in you. And so, um, that's hard to put on. Look at all these compensatory damages because really you're just kind of fine after that. Um, and and so we were really pleased with the, the $2.3 million in compensatories, but the punitives all came about by um, using the frame uh, in closing of um, betrayal. Um, and it, it actually started, Yvonne, as you noted, noted in opening. So you say it's it's, this is betrayal of you. It's betrayal of every single patient that walks in and is standing there in one of those stupid gowns to lie to them and tell them they need something they don't need. But then tied it into the analogy um, uh, about Dante's Inferno um, that I talked about in closing argument right before when we were talking about punitive damages, which I call, I think, the conscience of the community damages is what I call them, <clears throat> to, to show that you can't come to a little town like this and maybe you think you're going to get away with it because they think we're stupider than, than they are and that nobody's ever going to catch them. You can't come and do that to people. Um, and, and talked about how um, in Dante's Inferno, as I was reading it in, 
in uh, undergraduate school. Um, you know, they, the sins in Dante's hell go from the least serious to the most serious. And as I was reading the book, I was trying to figure, in, trying to figure out who would be in the lowest level of hell um, as he went down and more and more horrible things happened to people as they were. And I thought, oh, would it be murderers? Who would it be? And when you get to the bottom of hell, the, the sin in Dante's Inferno that is the worst is the betraying other people. Um, that that's, that's, the, that's Satan's sin. That's why he's frozen in the ice down there in the bottom of hell. Um, that's the sin of all the other people who are frozen there with him because, it, because it's so much, it's one thing to kill somebody. It's another to say, trust me, come into my house and then murder them in their sleep or something. That's so much worse that you've betrayed them in addition to um, having killed them. And, and, and so that's what I said these people had done, that Biotronic had done this. And um, we were helped a little bit by um, <clears throat> this guy who <coughs> they brought out here in 2003 um, from Germany, which is where the main Biotronic company is, and set him up in, um, uh, in, in his own American corporation there in Portland, Oregon, a guy named Jake Langa. Langa was his last right. name. And he was <laughs> like, he was like out of central casting for Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, it was like, <laughs> very, very German, very blonde, very Aryan. Gets on the stand with a very thick German accent. And um, one of the first questions I asked him was, um, you know, you're the CEO of this company. Yes. So the buck stops with you, doesn't it? And he said, what is this buck? He had a present in front of the desk and blah, 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 explaining all this stuff to him. And he gave us like the greatest line for punitives. He, um, when I was talking to him about all the money they paid one year, they paid like $6.5 million to doctors for, I can't remember if it was for the studies, the, the fake studies, or if it was for the fake training. It was one of those two things. And he said, on the stand, $6.5 million a year. That is nothing, nothing, he says to us. You know, we spend so much, 30 million some amount in research and blah, blah, blah. So this is a pittance that is nothing to our company, $6.5 million. So, oh, that's so, great. Oh my gosh. And you say, you know, look, I don't know how much you guys are gonna give them, but we know how much you, you can't give for punitive damages. You can't right. give $6.5 million because it's nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to give enough to get their attention. Um, and they ended up giving 10 times $6.5 million. That's very interesting. Wow. That's great. Yeah. I mean, his, his lawyers must have been cringing when he said that on the stand. Oh, yeah. Whoever knows. All I can tell you is whenever you get a big verdict like this, it's usually not anything you did. It's something that the other side did, that, yeah. the, that the defendants did something to really piss off the jury or defense counsel did something to piss off the jury. In this case, it was the people they put on um, who were so callous and, you know, hadn't invested, you know, basically, and we had all the goods on them about this scheme. And so um, they were really angry at them, obviously, because, yeah. because it was so nefarious and awful. And, um, and then they were still arrogant, even on the stand. The CEO was very, very arrogant on the stand. And that, that always makes the numbers higher, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, once, uh, I mean, usually uh, it's when the defense puts on their cases when we see the uh, jury can get fired up and get angry about it. Yeah. Um, was, I, how did you, I'm sorry, Steve. 
Oh, I, I was just going to ask you, was, was the punitives, um, uh, did you try the punitives separately from the compensatory or was that all in one no, phase? No. All in one case. All in, okay. You just put all in the same case. Yeah. So, so the argument for how much impunitives comes in in your final close of the of the uh, of the trial, then. Right. Okay. Correct. So, related to that, I was looking at your um, at this verdict form, and I don't I didn't know how common this was in um, New Mexico because I think it's kind of I mean the jury did a great job with this verdict form, but it's yes, they did. it seems pretty. Um, involved, how do you kind of handle walking them through the verdict form? Were you worried about them getting lost in it? I mean, there's... I put it up, I put it up on the screen and I go through it with them and I say, here's the form. This is the form you should pull out first. This is the first thing. These are the questions you have to answer. Here's question one. And then you write in and, and so, so I often use the, so, so we have simple verdict forms, but almost always the other side asks for special interrogatory verdict forms exactly like this one. So you have to pull it out and say, this is the important thing, pull this out first. This is what your foreman should pull out. These are the questions you have to answer. Let's go through the questions together. Here's question number one. Was there a civil conspiracy? And now let's, let me show you all the evidence as to why there is a civil conspiracy. And then using the actual form on the, the PowerPoint slide, when I get done with, this is why there's a civil conspiracy, I say, and what you write here is yes. Yeah. Right here, you write, yeah. and I put, I put the yes in for them. Yeah. On the side on the screen, right? Well, so and so, got it. And then one of the things I was really kind of um, amazed by, especially just considering kind of the picture that you had painted in opening was that they didn't um, allocate fault to anyone else in no. there you know like they didn't they didn't allocate um percentages of fault to tag or do clonus or anything no they did not they didn't ask for any of that stuff just, how did, how did you pull win. that off <laughs> oh i don't know they just thought they were gonna win in fact in fact so we this ended on a friday afternoon and it was supposed to end earlier in the day and we were supposed to send him out Friday afternoon, but there was a bomb scare at the courthouse in the middle of closing arguments. So we had to, everybody had to go outside, um, at, you know, like for a couple of hours. <laughs> then we came back in and we finished closing and we finished like at six o'clock at night, right? The defense went out and had a big celebratory party on Friday night after closing, which, which is like, I don't know. I'm superstitious. I would never celebrate no. before the jury came back. No. Never in my life. Right. <laughs> had campaign and all this stuff. They were so, so sure that they had won the case. And, um, and I actually had to get on a plane and go on a, uh, my husband and I are set to go on a, a cruise uh, in uh, Italy. So I, I didn't take the verdict. My law partner took the verdict because I was gone. <laughs> I was, wow. <laughs> um, and they came back on Monday and, um, they, I never heard from any of those defense lawyers again. Not, not the ones from DC. They never, <laughs> they never called, never emailed, never anything. Came back. They were so sure they'd won, and uh, they didn't. So. Oh my goodness. So even when talking. you even when you resolved the final cases, they were nowhere to be seen. They had just uh, gone back they, to DC. Different people were involved. Different people yeah. were involved. One of the things that had happened is they had told us they had no insurance. Um, and then when we got the verdict, they they said they were going to file for bankruptcy. And when they got a bankruptcy trust a guy who was considering bankruptcy, the harder guy to consider bankruptcy, I said, well, have you looked into whether or not they have insurance? Because I can't believe 
a company of this size would not have insurance. Right. And then he went and looked, and of course, they had all kinds of insurance. <gasps> they just never wow. About it. They never told the insurance company about the case. <gasps> so, um, so yeah, so bad. It was bad. <laughs> so, so then they had to fight with the insurance company to get all this stuff paid. So anyway, that's how it worked. Wow. So uh, tell me, I just wanted to, uh, for your case, what you were uh, proving, did you have a, an expert, a, a medical expert to come on to say that the um, pacemaker for your client, Mr. Swords, wasn't, uh, wasn't medically necessary? Yes. Yes. Okay. And also to say that, that the pacemakers for the three other people that we were allowed to talk about were also not medically necessary. So that at, they were what, what are called a class, they were class three patients who should never have gotten a pacemaker. Um, and went through and had to teach them all about that. And, and yes, that's right. And then, and then from their side, I guess how they defended it, they, they put on experts to try and say that it was medically necessary or? Um, so they, this was like a great fortuitous stroke of luck. They hired a local um, Albuquerque guy who did pacemaker stuff. And um, to come in and say, um, these pacemakers, there was a basis for putting these pacemakers in. Um, and interestingly, we had done an IPRA request on this osteopath, Clonus, and um, gotten from the, New Me the Mexico Medical Board an investigation that had been done on somebody who wasn't any of our clients. It was some other woman who had had a pacemaker put in that she didn't need. And the doctor they had hired to review it and to give the opinion that this was an unnecessary pacemaker was the same expert they hired. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so we didn't tell them about that. And I didn't ask him about that in his deposition. And the first time he heard about it was when he was on the stand. I said, now, now you know this guy puts in pacemakers that, they, that, he, that people don't need. And he said, I don't know anything like that. And I said, are you sure about that? This guy was putting in pacemakers. Well, not that you would know about is what he said. No, he remember. said that. Oh my goodness. But he, but so he didn't think we could get it. He didn't think we could get it from the medical board, right? And, and we didn't tell the other side we had it. So we got to cross examine in front of the jury about how he testified this guy had put in a pacemaker that he, that somebody didn't need. Um, oh, that's awesome. Wow. So yeah, it was, it worked out really, really well. That was, it, it, nice. was this the same guy who also admitted that you should never pay a doctor um, for, for medical treatment? I mean, that the, um... That's exactly right. And so, okay. so the one guy, the one thing that we got was we got a local, somebody down at Crucis, that another doctor that Clonus had tried to get on board with Biotronic. And he told that doctor, they're paying me $1,000 for each one that I do is what he told that doctor. And we brought that doctor to testify and they didn't, they had never asked that doctor that in his deposition. So they didn't know about it till the guy hit the stand. And, and there, and, and so we'd gotten in deposition from this guy, Sean Mazur, their expert. If somebody was getting a thousand dollars a pop, that would be illegal. Wouldn't it? And he said, yes, that would be because he didn't know, we had the uh, the other evidence, so he had to admit that on the stand too. So it it was really it was great. It was like I mean, great between crush. their uh, corporate rep and their um and their expert, you got <laughs> it gave you some gifts. <laughs> it was pretty fun. It was pretty. Fun. <laughs> it's always great having stuff they don't know about, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> the only the only better one is the one I think that's in my bio, which was a um, only better cross was this uh, polygraph expert, one of the early early polygraphers, who after he helped uh, pioneer some of the polygraph stuff, got into all this woo woo stuff where he believed that plants and single celled organisms um, could um, uh, had like a soul and could feel things and do all this <laughs> stuff, and he began polygraphing strange plants. things like plants and eggs <laughs> eggs and he would in the middle of the night holograph his own sperm at night what? he would hook his own sperm up what? i don't even know how you hook, hook a sperm up to your um device but he oh would my gosh. Up, he'd go across the room and he would sniff amyl nitrate and it was his testimony that the, his the sperm sample of his reacted to him sniffing amyl nitrate across the room so so that was great. And then the best one, the best thing he ever did was he got called in on a homicide case where they didn't know who had killed the guy. And they had a bunch of suspects, like 75 different suspects could have killed this person. And so he said to the people, um, well, were there plants in the room? And the people said, well, yeah, there were three plants in the room. So he hooked the plants up to a polygraph <laughs> and he had the 75 suspects walk by the plants to see which ones the plants reacted to. Oh and um, he said, sadly, as I cross-examined him, um, no, they couldn't identify the suspect. He was so sad about that. <laughs> but, but, but the best part about that cross was the defense had no clue about any of that stuff about until he was on the stand. We didn't ask any of that stuff in deposition. And so for the first time, they, they just began sinking lower and lower into their chairs as the cross-examiner in court on all these bizarro things that he'd done. And he was completely unrepentant. He said, you know, they laughed at Galileo too. Someday I will be proven correct. <laughs> so there you I, go. I, I'm surprised you didn't approach him with a plant and see if he could uh, hook it up to his polygraph. There you go. It would be, it would be interesting to watch, wouldn't it? Anyway, that was the best one ever. I, I mean, you can't you can't beat that one. I mean, I've never. I mean, you know, taking your own sperm and uh, trying to test that. That's. Uh, uh, that's I'm so surprised weird. how you. I, I am. I am wondering how you figured how you found out about that. Did he publish it or something? Or. Uh... Yeah, he had talked to other polygraphers, and we had a polygraph expert who had been <laughs> with him, and the guy had told him about all this stuff that he'd done, and so we we had gotten it from our polygraph expert oh about all these things. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> and he admitted it. He owned up to it. He, well, he said yes. And he was not only do you own up to it, but he was still right. He was right. And, and by God, someday they would recognize he was correct. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> Maybe still someday. Don't we don't know. Can, yeah. So I don't know if you can tell the sperm story on your podcast, but we'll see. <laughs> well, um, we go with it all. We will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, 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 we really appreciate your time. I did want to talk about, you know, Yvonne started out at the beginning of this, you know, about how you painted this picture of the vulnerability in the doctor's office and then getting this high pressure sales tactic. And then I, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about in your clothes um, that you, you know, sort of started off with the one place you would expect where, you know, somebody would be completely truthful with you is in the doctor's office, which right. I think we can, again, all uh, associate with. That, uh, yeah, you expect that, you know, I'm going to be completely honest with the doctor and I hope the doctor's completely honest with me. Uh, and then, and, and, you know, again, you know, weave that theory into, in, or that uh, theme into your, uh, into your closing. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that. 
So, so in, at the end of closing, I brought it back to that at the, at the very, very end to talk about why they had to award punitive damages. Because I said, look, I don't know if you or your family went to this hospital during the time this guy was there, but anybody could have gone in there um, and, and had him lie to them about this, this pacemaker. And so you have to protect um, not just yourselves, but you have to protect the whole community. Um, from from this kind of conduct and to say not only is this this guy's kind of inappropriate but if this hospital is doing this with anybody else um, you know it's it you're going to punish people who do this you're going to have to you're punish this biotronic company so that nobody ever does this again here at at Mountain View Hospital and and so you brought it back again to the community and to the idea that they they it could have been about them I mean they could have had a pacemaker put in because they would have gone in, this guy would have said to them, you're gonna die, you can't leave here, you're gonna die unless you have a pacemaker. And that could have happened to any one of them. Um, and that was, um, uh, that seemed to work, you know, there you go. Yeah. Well, it, so it makes, me, it makes me wonder that during jury selection, did you talk to jurors about whether or not they had been to that hospital or seen that doctor or had sure. a family member who had a pacemaker? Sure, 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 sure. And, and it in fact, I think we had questionnaires even um, to ask them about their contact with Mountain View. Some people had had uh, relatives that worked there because it's kind of a small town. Um, um, I think most of the pace people that had actually had either had pacemakers or with relatives, I don't know. Some, I think there were some people on our jury who had relatives who had pacemakers, but that's about as close as we got. But everybody else got off if they were too close. I think mostly struck by the other side. I probably would have been fine with somebody who had a pacemaker as long as it was legitimate because they would know you know what actual symptoms they had that, that none of our people had when they got their pacemakers so um yeah, yeah it was but we talked about that we also talked about we also talked about um damages um in Bordire, not not in opening um talked um about my greatest fear, I, I use Bordire to um, talk about my greatest fear and then solicit the jurors' fears too, but uh, or their 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 honesty about things. But my I said to them one of my greatest fears, and this is what the other side said to us: we're going to kick your ass down there basically because it's a conservative place. And so I said, look, I've been told by a number of people that this was stupid to file this case down here. Um, that. Uh, a Las Cruces jury is never going to give the kind of money that an Albuquerque jury would give or that a Santa Fe jury would give um, because people are jealous of their um, people, other members of their community getting so much money. And then why should they get it when I'm not getting it? And, and so I said, I, so I'm just wondering about that. Do you think it was a mistake to come back to the place where that this happened and try to hold these people accountable? Um, or should we have filed this in a bigger place? And am I going to have any problems um, getting the money that these people were entitled to by being down here. And then just let the jurors talk about that. What was the uh, reaction from them about that? Um, well, people would say things like, well, our lives are worth just as much as the ones in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, right? Right, right. I mean, right. Just because we're in a small town, that doesn't mean that our lives aren't worth as much as other people. Um, and so, so that's the kind of discussion that that engendered. And I thought that was very helpful. Um, because then they wanted to give an award like an Albuquerque or right. Santa Fe give to protect their local people, you know? So, yeah, that was, that was kind of a nice. That's great. Yeah. 
So one thing I forgot to ask you about, and I noticed in your uh, in your closing, is there there was some uh, uh, spoliation of evidence or some destruction of evidence uh, by uh, by Mr. Tag. That was Mr. Tag. Mr. Tag. We kept trying to get. So so when you have a pacemaker implanted, <clears throat> you have to go back and. By the way, the, the the bad doctor gets to bail for all this stuff too. You have to keep going back to his office and have something done on a computer called an interrogation where they were downloading your machine to see if it's had to pace your heart or if it's a defibrillator, whether it's had to react. And it shows whether it actually was necessary or not. Like if right. you never had to pace your heart, probably you didn't need a pacemaker, you know? Um, and so mysteriously, um, all of those disappeared. <laughs> they were just all gone. <laughs> <They> were, <laughs> And they, they said, well, it was on a machine, and I don't know what happened to the machine, or maybe it got stolen. He gave like about four or five different versions about what happened to it. One was um, they sent it somewhere, and it got shipped off to the wrong place, and got shipped back to Germany, and then they erased, they by accident erased everything to clean off the machine. That was one version. Another version, finally, was the last version he came up, up with at trial, which is about the fourth version of what happened to all this stuff, was that um, uh, somebody had stolen it out of his trunk, had stolen the machine, with the interrogations out of the trunk in his car. That was the last right. one. So we get, to, right. we get to put up all four of those versions, um, you know, and say, <laughs> you just can't believe anything this guy says. Yeah. He was, he was really sleazy. And uh, he was their creature, so they had to live with him. Yeah. So did the other uh, 34 cases that you had, or 33 cases, did they all involve Mr. Tag and, uh, and Dr. Klonis? Same three, same, same hospital, same... Doctor, same sales rep. Actually, some of them were from, um, Clonus actually went and worked at, he was doing so well at Mountain View that the other hospital in Las Cruces allowed him to come and get privileges to do pacemakers at their hospital too. So we had both of the two local hospitals involved um, with the various patients. And then we had Clonus, well, always Clonus and always Tag. Those, that, those three, yeah. And, and um, we had, uh, Mr. Tag uh, lost the uh, pacemaker interrogations in the other cases as well. Oh my goodness! All of them were gone. They were all. They were. <laughs> it's just so sad. Just, I don't know what happened. Or, or, or if you don't believe that version, how about this version of what happened to them? So, all of that, you know, was bad for them too. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, and then uh, he, had, he, he had IRS problems too. Yeah, and I saw. I saw that he wasn't paying his uh, paying his taxes or something like that. He made he made a fortune. He made a fortune over the years. I think, um, you know, for a sales guy, he was making three four hundred thousand dollars a year in a small town like Las Cruces, um, and but paid no taxes on any of it. Didn't pay taxes on any of it. So mm. that was bad too. Hmm. Mm hmm. Well, uh, well, Randy, this has been uh, such a pleasure talking with you, and uh, and thank you for uh, thank you for uh, making the time for us, and we really appreciate it. Um, I just want to say that we've been talking with Randy McGinn of McGinn Montoya Love and Curry in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, and you can find Randy at the uh, website of McGinnLaw.com. That's M-C-G-I-N-N-L-A-W.com, and we've been talking about the Swords versus Biotronic. Uh, Inc. case and uh, the verdict in that case was uh, 67,383,673 so it's just a, uh, a, a fantastic result. Uh, Randy thank you so much for your time. 
been great talking to you both. Okay, guys. Okay. Later. Thanks, Randy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.